Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Jonathan Icke, has given us the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in three decades. It draws on a landslide of recently released uh, White House telephone transcripts, FBI documents, letters, oral histories, and other material. And uh, he is also uh, the best-selling author of a few other outstanding books. For instance, Ali, A Life and Luckiest Man, Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. He served as consulting producer for the Ken Burns PBS series, Muhammad Ali. He's appeared on the Today Show, NPR's Fresh Air, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. But his greatest claim to fame, according to his parents, is that his name once appeared in a Jeopardy question, which was solved correctly for $200. You can follow him on Twitter, X, at Jonathan Eig, E-I-G, and you can visit him at JonathanEig.com. Jonathan, wonderful to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I'll say I, I love the biography, um, and I did not realize that this was the first serious biography of King in three decades. That That's stunning to me. Why? Yeah. It's shocking to me, too, and it's really uh, four decades if you, uh, if you count the Stephen Oates book as the last a big biography, which is, is how I would interpret that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure why. Um, in some ways, it's because King is such a daunting subject, and, um, and, and and the story is changing so quickly as we learn more through these uh, FBI documents that are constantly being released. Um, but I also think it's because um, we tend to think of King in, in, in you know, in, since the holiday was created, we've turned him into this very safe figure. We've right. turned him into a saint. Almost, yeah, and yeah. Um, and I think there's a there, there's a reluctance to examine him more closely because we're afraid that it might puncture that image, and I, I don't think it punctures the image. I think it only enhances the image when you when you tell the truth. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. Let Let's go back uh, to the beginning uh, about his family, his upbringing. Um, he was raised in a, a relatively well off middle class family, right in Atlanta. Yeah, that's right. Um, compared to most black people of his generation, his peers, um, he was he was somewhat buffered from the the, the horrors of, of racism in the Jim Crow South because his father was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, and you know, the, the the preacher couldn't be fired uh, for speaking out, and and that gave him a level of protection. It also gave him a steady his family, a steady income, and and um, he was a very ambitious kid. He, he tried to sneak into kindergarten a year early. He went to uh, skip several grades. In, in grammar school and ended up enrolling at Morehouse at the age of 15. So this was a kid who always had uh, high expectations um, thrust upon him and had high expectations for himself as well. Was he a sensitive boy? Very sensitive. All his life, really. You know, we lose sight of this. This is a kid who was tempted suicide twice as an adolescent, mm. um, jumped out of a second-story window when he found out that his grandmother had been hurt, and then later when he discovered that she had died, um, and he was always easily bruised emotionally. Um, at the same time, really charming, really charismatic. Um, people love to be around him. But this is something we'll see throughout his life. He's he's very sensitive. He's, he doesn't really like criticism. He wants to please people. He has a hard time saying no to people. Um, it's very interesting to think that you know our nation's one of our nation's greatest protest leaders really hated conflict uh, <laughs> in his personal life. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, that, excel, that itself is worth examining. Um, 
so obviously he endured conflict even though it violated his you know temperament um obviously because of what commitment to principle yeah commitment to principle which is rooted in his faith you know yeah. i think that um everything about him I and mean, he learns to read the quote from the bible before he can read his, huh. and as a, and his father his grandfather and, and his maternal great-grandfather were all preachers and um i think that um, his faith really helps him overcome his insecurities and also gives him a you know a, a moral guidepost that this is what he's expected to live up to and and he can't abide racism because it conflicts with what's in the Bible. Yeah. You know, he can't abide Jim Crow laws because it conflicts with what's in the Bible and what's, what it's in the Constitution. So, you know, he's constantly aspiring, and I think the black social gospel says that it's not just enough for him to aspire, but he has to try to shape the world and, yeah. and bring the nation into into line with with what the, 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 those documents and the Bible promise. That's right. Yeah, sin for him wasn't just a matter of personal behavior that was also related to social institutions. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, he felt like, um, especially later in life, you know, as a preacher, I think his activism was an outgrowth of his of his role as a preacher. I think he saw the work that he was doing as being designed to save the soul of the world, or the nation, um, that he was a pastor first and, and foremost all the time. You know, I, one of the things that strikes me, uh, looking back a, at him, is in some in some ways, at least at the beginning of the the movement, you know, time of the Montgomery bus boycott and forward. In some ways, he's a he's a somewhat conservative activist. I mean, racism was ungodly. Uh, racism was un-American. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you would hear a conservative evangelical saying today. Um, he he had this understanding of structural sin, but in some ways he wanted to call people not only to uh, faith in God, but he wanted to uh, make democracy work. He wanted the, the national story to work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes it so interesting. He's He's leading this protest, this uprising, but they're not uprising, and they're not rising up to demand the destruction of the United States of America. They're mm-hmm. rising up because they want to join the United States of America. Yeah. They want to be considered equal partners in this democracy, and that's different, and that's what makes it so hard to ignore him, I think. When he begins in Montgomery speaking out, um, he's saying that the protesters there are only demanding the American dream. They're only demanding that we live up to the words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So, in a way, it's very hard to argue with, because if you if you disagree with him on that, it seems like you're you're saying you don't believe in these documents. And that's part of his, his great moral strength, and mm-hmm. that's part of what makes him so difficult to ignore. Does he move leftward as he, uh, as he continues on? Yes and no. In a way, he's radical to begin with. You know, he's a radical Christian because yeah. he's actually trying to get us to live up to the example of Jesus Christ, which means you know, loving your truly loving your enemy and and, and helping the poor, um, treating everyone as if they're equal in the eyes of God. That's pretty radical. Um, but at the beginning, it does seem like he's cons- he's more conservative, and and we and we see him speaking out more. We see him feeling empowered to address these other issues beyond just segregation as he gains 
fame and as he gains influence. And that's when he says it's, it's not enough anymore just to talk about Jim Crow laws in the South. He has to address poverty. He has to address um, income inequality and, and materialism and, and militarism, because that's what's in the Bible. And, mm-hmm. and that's where he really begins to be perceived as more of a radical. But I think it was it was baked in there all along. Yeah. So it, right to the end, his faith uh, was was a, was a motivator for him. No question about that. And in fact, you know, we start to see his advisors, people who at one time thought of themselves as more radical than King, his advisors are saying, you know, why don't you just stick to the South? You know, going to you know, going you shouldn't go to Chicago. You don't know what you're doing there. Um, and, and all of our funding is coming from the North. So if you start attacking and complaining about Northern segregation and Northern discrimination, you know, you're going to, you're going to damage our fundraising. And King has to say to these advisors, you know, it's not about what's practical. It's not about what's politically wise. It's about what's moral. Um, so <laughs> it, 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 he's always going, falling back on that. That's just who he is. And, and they don't understand it. They don't speak the language. Yeah. After the Montgomery bus boycott, demands begin to be, get put on his life. I mean, he, he has to write a book. He's got this magazine column that he's writing now. He's speaking all over. Uh, what happens to, I mean, how does he do that? How is, how is his life organized to take advantage of all those opportunities? <laughs> it's not really very well organized. It's kind of a mess. Okay. And, and on top of all those things you mentioned, he's being asked to duplicate the success of the Montgomery That's Boston right, that's right, yeah. Um, and, and to spread his, his word nationally and to, to make this a national movement. He founds the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for that reason. And, um, and he doesn't have an organization. He doesn't have a fundraising team. Um, he doesn't have, you know, membership. He's, he's making this all up as he goes along. And it, and it doesn't go very well, to be honest, you know, it's, his first couple of attempt, attempts to duplicate the Montgomery protests really fail miserably. Um, and that's one of the things I love about King, is that he's, he's, he's called to this, he's thrust into this position of leadership, never really having sought it, and he just, you know, he's, he says, okay, I'm, I'll figure it out as I go. <laughs> yeah. Um, give us a sense of how dangerous it was um, to be involved in the movement at that time. Well, just to begin with, in Montgomery, where he starts out, there have been 365 lynchings since Reconstruction, and the Klan was very active, and its membership doubled and tripled as King became more prominent and as the bus boycott began. So um, he knew his life was at risk. His home was bombed. Um, his shotguns were fired through the windows. Um, a, a woman that he described as demented stabbed him in the chest. He started getting constant death threats. So this was not... Um, you know, hypothetical. He was dealing with it, and, and there was a moment early on in the bus boycotts where his father and, and Coretta's father showed up on the porch of the night of one of these bombings and said, that's it, you know, it's over. You're coming, you're coming with us back home. Um, someone else can take over from here. And both Martin and Coretta stood up to them and said, no, you know, we have a responsibility here. But King knew every day of his life that, that, his, that he was in danger, and it only got worse when the FBI put a target on his back. Yeah, that's we'll talk about that in the next segment. That's a vital part of this story. Uh, tell us about Coretta Scott King. How did they meet? Uh, how they court? How'd that work? 
Fred is one of the great unsung heroes, and, and we think we know her because she lived such a long time and maintained his legacy. But what we forget and what we, we don't appreciate is that she was much more of an activist than he was when they met. <laughs> and that's why King fell in love with her. You know, King was dating a lot of women in Boston. Uh, he was at Boston University, and she was at the New England Conservatory of Music, hoping to prepare for a career as a concert singer. And, um, and then that came Jonathan, I, I just hear the music coming up. Hold it there, and we'll pick up on uh, Coretta Scott King on the other side of the break, if you don't mind. Thank you. My guest, Jonathan Ike, is the author of the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in four decades. It's called King, A Life. And it, the reviews, by the way, are outstanding. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Jonathan Eig. He is the author of the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in four decades. It's called King, A Life. Uh, I heartily recommend it to you. It was one of my best reads of last year. And we were talking about Coretta Scott King before the break and how they, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. met Coretta Scott when they were in Boston. Uh, she was studying at the New England Conservatory, hoping to become a concert singer. And uh, tell us, how how did Cupid uh, affect their relationship? It was, a, it was a love born of activism. You know, she was beautiful and intelligent, but what really attracted King was that she had been um, involved in protests already. And, and King hadn't been involved in any of that. <laughs> so, um, Coretta had been to Antioch College, and she was involved in lots of student protests, and she'd been to the Progressive Party National Convention, and she had ideas for things that she wanted him to read. I think that's what really excited him. And, and um, if you look at their early letters, they're, you know, they're, they're full of this intellectual challenges and, and full of debates about communism versus capitalism, and Coretta held her own and really... All her life, she would push him to be more aggressive, to think bigger. Um, the, the irony, of course, is that he was also sexist and um, yes. mistreated her, um, cheated on her, and, and denied her a, a chance to become more involved in the movement, which she desperately wanted. Yeah. So, um, you know, he was not perfect. This is one of his real blind spots. Right. The, the, I mean, this was, the leaders of the movement were definitely male, and yet there was a lot of talent female talent around explain to us why this happened why did that these why weren't these women given opportunity when when there was great need for them yeah well this was true in in many areas of life in the 1950s and 60s but in particular in the civil rights movement which was led primarily by um black baptist preachers and they came from an environment that was especially um sexist historically you know, in the black church, um, women were generally relegated to the roles of, of playing the piano or the organ and perhaps leading some some social committees. And that's the environment in which King and the other leaders of the of the movement generally grew up. Um, so the women paid a price for that, and and women were constantly reminding the men that they were missing out on these on this great source of talent. Uh, but the men, in for the most part, were unable to overcome their their prejudices, which is it's sad for a movement that was built uh, centered around equality. Yeah. Um, but that's just the way it was. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about um, his extramarital affairs. 
how 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 big a mark is this on his life? I mean, was this a one-time thing, multiple affairs? What happened? It was multiple, and it was fairly constant, really, um, almost throughout his entire marriage. Um, and it was a, um, you know, it's a sign of his of his of his flaws, to be sure, uh, that he um, was not remotely perfect when it came to this. But I think what's important about the affairs in the long run. Um, is how our government weaponized those affairs. You know, the FBI began surveilling him because they thought he might have ties to former communists. And once they learned that he was not remotely involved in communist activity, they found out that he was having these affairs, and they used that to try to um, undermine his work and to try to destroy him. Actually, you know, at one point, they actually um, made a tape of his activities in hotel rooms and sent it to his home with a letter basically telling King that if he didn't commit suicide, he was going to be exposed. So um, the the affairs are sad in many ways. They're certainly sad because they reflect his, you know, his moral failure. But the the saddest part is is the uh, conduct of the government. I think. Yeah, it must have it must have been difficult for him to live with that contradiction. You know, as a active Christian preacher, he's got this um, ongoing, uh, you know, sin. Uh, we don't have much from him, though, on his interior life, do we? No, you know, his writings are all really political. Um, and we also, you know, we can look at his sermons and we can, you know, read between the lines and see how he's struggling. He talks yeah. about how we all uh, live like Jekyll and Hyde with, with a dark side that we that we try to ignore or suppress and, and that we, we need to deal with it. And, and we can also hear, um, well, we can read the transcripts of some of his conversations with the FBI, and we can hear how sad and how lonely he is and, and at times how depressed he sounds. So we know he's struggling with it, but he never publicly acknowledged um, this side of his life, yeah. understandably, I guess. Um, why, why was J. Edgar Hoover so bent upon destroying him? It's a great question. I mean, I think for Hoover, it's a fear of change. It's a fear of the other He's um, not just obsessed with, with King, he's obsessed with um, anybody who's different, who poses a threat to the status quo. And in, in the case of King, I think it's, it's uh, compounded by racism. I think uh, most people would agree that Hoover was racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, he knows that King is not interested in communism, and he maintains this obsession. I believe it's because he thinks that if King is successful in uniting black people and white people in pushing America toward a new kind of a, of a democracy, a democracy built on equality, um, well, that means someone's going to have to give up power. And that someone would be the people in charge right now. Yeah. And, and, and Hoover sees his job as protecting uh, those with the power, making sure they keep that power. Let's go, let's go to the assassination. I had the opportunity uh, years ago, after the release of his book, to actually interview James Earl Ray uh, from mm. prison, and I, my, it was an experience that I remember clearly because it was evident to me that he was a liar. I'd read his mm-hmm. book, and it doesn't carry the kind of details a real memoir does. I mean, it's like if you compare it, think of a a, a real memoir as a quote photograph. This was like a stick figure uh, picture the way he portrayed Raoul. Who the heck was James Earl Ray? <laughs> I think he was a, 
a racist idiot who thought it would be a good idea to assassinate King because it would make him look like a hero. Um, and I know a lot of people, including the King family, including friends of King, think it was a conspiracy that he was a straw man for the government. I don't know. Um, I don't. Mm. I, I don't even want to go there. But I do think that you know the government created the conditions that would make some loser like James Orr think it was a good idea to kill this man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just it's it's amazing to me that the circumstances lined up for him to do it. Uh, but uh, upon upon his death, um, of course, riots broke out around the, the nation. Robert Kennedy uh, made the announcement and talked about, tried to quell down the, the reaction. Uh, what was King's relationship to the Kennedys? It was complicated, for sure. Um, you know, a lot of people feel like King and the black community got JFK elected. And, and upon his election, King was very disappointed with JFK's um, reluctance to bring on civil rights legislation felt like Kennedy was being too politically cautious and not doing what he knew, what both of them knew was the right thing to do. And it wasn't until Birmingham that King finally put enough pressure on, on Kennedy that he agreed to finally introduce this legislation. Um, but at the same time, as King later discovered, it was Robert F. Kennedy who authorized the wiretaps on King and reauthorized them and reauthorized them and and, and, and King, um, I think, felt like he could never fully trust the Kennedys. Um, and, and I think part of it is just this disconnect, because King doesn't really understand why politicians behave the way they do, why they're, um, why they're being political and not yeah. doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to LBJ then, this uh, Southerner who had many segregationist friends. Uh, how, did they relate to, how did King relate to LBJ? Another great, complicated relationship because LBJ seems, and is, I think, I think it's fair to say, genuinely passionate about fighting poverty, about fighting racism, about deconstructing um, Jim Crow, and and King is one of his great and most important partners, and they seem to get along beautifully, at least in the beginning. Um, but then, you know, LBJ is poisoned in some ways by J. Edgar Hoover. LBJ seems to enjoy getting these updates on King's sex life. And then when King begins speaking out on the Vietnam War, Hoover particularly plays that card to try to um, really poison the relationship between King and, and LBJ. And we really see the relationship deteriorating uh, over the years. And, um, of course, they, they do work together to bring about some of the most important legislation this country has ever seen. Yeah. And, um, and that is, you know, both of their, to both of their credit. Um, but it, it's, it's just unfathomable to think about you know what else they might have accomplished if their relationship hadn't gone south yeah you know the the i have a dream speech has kind of become part of the american canon now uh and it is it's a beautifully constructed speech um was he a great writer or did he draw upon other people uh to help him with his speeches he was a great communicator. He was not a great writer. Okay. Um, his power was the oratory, and often if, when you read the speeches, they don't sound as good as they did coming out of his mouth. <laughs> um, and, and that's because he's a preacher. Um, he's he, he's brilliant uh, behind the podium. He's at his best when he's when he puts the speech down. 
and goes off on 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 a sermon, which is exactly what happened at the March on Washington. The first half of the speech was was written, and he read it carefully. And when he when he pushed that paper aside and began to just preach, uh, that's when he really had the crowd eating out of his hands. So, um, was he a great writer? Um, not in the technical sense, but he was certainly you know one of our greatest communicators. Uh, you know, he he gets the Nobel Prize. Uh, how how old was he when he received that? Oh, what is he like thirty three yeah. at that point, something yeah. like that? Young, um, really young. He's twenty six when when he starts leaving when the Montgomery bus boycott begins, and he's only thirty nine when he dies. So we're talking about a very young man throughout all of this. When he's meeting with JFK in the White House, we think of JFK as being this young star. Um, King was thirteen years younger than JFK. <laughs> that's that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, how did he, again, we don't have much, you know, we don't have diaries or journals from him, but I'm just wondering how he understood his extraordinary rise to prominence and power. Uh, how did he account for it? Do, do we have him on record saying anything? Yeah, we do. He says it's a calling. He says that, you know, God told him to do this and that he, once he accepted that responsibility, there was no turning back. And and I think that's the best way to understand it. He was not looking to become the leader of any movement. Right. He was looking to lead his church and maybe raise a family and perhaps become a professor someday. And when he found himself in this moment where people turned to him for help, uh, and God spoke to him and said, you know, do you know, go forth and and do this. He he believed so strongly that it was his responsibility. And I think that's what really guided him. Yeah, he never looked back. Never looked back. I mean, look at those last. Look at his last sermon, his last speech in Memphis the day before he was assassinated. What did he say? Um, I, you know, I, I, I longevity is, is, would be nice. There are benefits to having a long life, but that doesn't matter to me now. Yeah, because I am here to serve God, and and I have seen the promised land. Yeah. I may not get there with you, but I know that together we as a people will reach the promised land. It's, he has given up all sense of self. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, moment. How I'd like to know, how did they, he relate to the others in the movement? His friend, Ralph uh, Abernathy, um, Andrew Young, uh, John Lewis, how, Jesse Jackson. How did they get along as, as, as guys? You know, I got to interview almost all those people that you just mentioned, except for Abernathy, and I did interview his wife. And they just adored the man. And to them, he was Martin. He was a friend. He was the guy who ate with his fingers because <laughs> his fork slowed him down too much. Um, you know, he smoked cigarettes but hid it from the public. He would take off his socks and shoes and sing along with music on the radio and when they were sitting around the house. And, and he was just funny. He had a wicked sense of humor. And, and these guys just adored him, and, and, and they felt his pain because he was, he was carrying the burden for yeah. so many of them. And, and none of them had to deal with anywhere near the pressure that he had to deal with. It was like he was carrying it for all of them. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you especially for the work uh, on this book. I loved it. And uh, hope to talk with you again. Anytime. Thanks so much. Jonathan Eig is the author of King, A Life, the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in 40 years. It's uh, outstanding, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't shy away from the tough moments.